Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 300, Finance Friday edition, where we interview April and talk about the trade offs between the tax savings of retirement accounts and after tax investments. My personal education, I had scholarships. Um, you know, I had, I went to a state school, top of my class, so I was able to go for pretty much free. Anything that I didn't get a scholarship for, I got other scholarships for, you know, 2,000 here, 1,000 here and then cash flowed by working part-time jobs. So my concern is that, are we at a point where if we keep saving, is this gonna get used? And is there a better way for us to allocate the cash at this point in time? Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me as always is my deep diving co-host, Scott Mariana Trench. Oof, always a lot of pressure to come up with a good response to your intros, Mindy. (laughs) Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or achieve financial flexibility in a general sense, um, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards those dreams. Scott, I am excited to talk to April today. She has a unique set of circumstances where she does have a high income, but on the surface, it looks great. Down below, there's some bubbling uncertainty. Absolutely. A great episode. Lots to learn from this. Should we jump right into it? Well, before we do, let our attorneys get satisfied by saying the contents of this podcast are informational in nature and are not legal or tax advice. And neither Scott nor I nor Bayer Pockets is engaged in the provision of legal or tax or any other advice. You should seek your own advice from professional advisors, including lawyers and accountants regarding the legal tax and financial implications of any financial decision you contemplate. Today, we're talking to April, a high income earner with a great savings rate. She has her numbers dialed in, tracking her money through an app called Every Dollar, which is a Ramsey solution app that was designed to give every dollar a job. But as she shares her current numbers, keep in mind that it wasn't always like this. She grew up in scarcity mode, and that had a profound impact on her relationship with money. In fact, one of her top questions is how do you balance spending money on things you value now with saving for the future? And we all know that I have the same problem. So, April, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. Thank you very much, Mindy and Scott, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Interest rates are sky high in 2023, and buying a rental property means you could get stuck with an 8, 9, or 10% mortgage rate. But what about a 2.99% rate with rent to retirement? Rent to retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate with an average cash flow of over $900 per month. Plus, They've got options where you can put as little as 5% down with no PMI. As the nation's leading turnkey investment company, Rent to Retirement helps investors build headache-free, high cash flow rental portfolios. And since their properties are fully turnkey, newly built or renovated, leased and managed, anyone can invest, even those who aren't into landlording. So what are you waiting for? This 2.99% rate deal won't last long. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. 
And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. We have a lot to talk about today. So let's jump right in. Let's look at your numbers and let's look at where they're going. What is your income? Sure. So um, gross, me and my husband together make about $330,000 a year. Um, I make about 200,000 of that. So I have a base salary of 158,000 and then I get bonuses twice a year, which amount to approximately 20 K. Um, and then I also get restricted stock units that are about $20,000 a year. And what do you do? Uh, I am an it program manager. Awesome. Um, and then my husband, he is in the, um, construction business. So he does home building. He's our construction superintendent. And so he manages the construction of homes. Um, and his base is 80 K and then he also makes bonuses based on performance. And so that's at about 50 K. So that's how we come up with the 330,000 a year. Awesome. Super strong income. Yes. And this is fairly new. Um, we've, um, just the past couple of years. So very different <laughs> from where we were <laughs> a while back. So, okay. And then do you have any additional income? We do not at this point in time. And that's what I want to talk about as well is how we can uh, look into passive income sources. Well, at 3.30 annually, I think you're doing okay. (laughs) Where is that money going? Good question. So in terms, I'll do a high level. Um, In terms of giving, we give about $500 a month. Um, We save about $2,900, almost $3,000 a month. In addition to, I should mention, Um, We're maxing out our 401ks for both of us. So that's about 41,000 a year that we're putting away in our 401ks. Um, We're also um, putting money into our HSA. We max that out for a health savings account because we have a high deductible plan. And then we also max out the flexible um, spending dependent care because we have two kids that we have to pay for um, childcare for. Um, And so our take-home pay ends up to be about... um, a little short of $14,000 a month. And so it's about 13868 to be precise. So the numbers I'm giving are um, for that. So it's 500 in giving, 2900 in savings, about 4500 for housing, transportation at about 920 We have food at 1200 lifestyle at 1500 insurance and tax at 1500 And then we have daycare, uh, which includes um, a sinking fund for summer camps, et cetera, at $750 a month. Awesome. So we've got uh, $10,000 in expenses. Yeah. Let's call it $11,000 in expenses with $3,000 in savings, which you're calling an expense. Um, yes. <laughs> and, and your monthly take home is what? 
about 13,800. So it's just short of 14,000. Okay, great. Um, awesome. And what, where are your assets and liabilities? Sure. So where they're located, um, let me run through here. So we've got, um, I have several retirement accounts. I have, um, a Roth that's at 28,000, an IRA, um, a, a SEP IRA from a previous employer that's at about 52. Um, I have a 401k that my current company at just about 62k. I have a rollover IRA at 143, a rollover Roth at 16, and then my husband's retirement um, is at about 125. So I think Mindy, you had added it all up because unfortunately I hadn't just retirement accounts. I think we're at about did you say 495,000? somewhere in that range. So yes, April shared all of her numbers with me in advance. And I added these up in a little bit of a different way. I have your retirement accounts at $495,000. I have your cash at $151,000, which we will talk about. I have your home equity at $603,000, cars at $30,000 and crypto at $1,300. I'm going to jump in here on my little soapbox and say that her total assets are 1.3 million and her total crypto is $1,300. And if you do the math, that's like 0.0000001% of her entire I love that allocation of crypto. That's wonderful. I do too. If, (laughs) If you have more than that, you're doing crypto wrong. And yes, I don't, I don't care. That, yeah. Send a note to Scott at biggerpockets.com if you want to argue about that because I don't I like want to hear it. Yeah. You have slightly more crypto than I do at zero. Um. Yeah. And that's my husband, by the way, who wanted to play with it. So that's like his like little gambling, we're calling it money. So I love it. Play with it and it's gambling. Yes. I hope it goes up to a billion, but if it doesn't, you've wasted yeah. no money. Yeah. So so let's go. What 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 are your goals? How can we help you today? So uh, the biggest goal is that, so uh, as Mindy mentioned in the intro, um, I come from very much of a scarcity mindset. Um, and basically we've gone through two live and flips. Um, we're in a third house here. Um, and we built up our assets and I'm kind of at a point where I'm just trying to figure out we're at 39 and 40, um, we're in the typical nine to five grind, um, and I'm incredibly grateful for where we are, but I'd like the opportunity to build in some flexibility in terms of passive income. And so I'm looking to see, you know, what can we do in the next eight to 15 years um, so that we can have options so that if we don't want to work in a typical nine to five, or we want to go part-time, or we want to work on those passion projects, we can do that. Um, and so I have some short-term questions, you know, such as like, I have I don't like um, debt, as it was mentioned. And so I have a $24,000 car loan. Should I just pay that off? And then I don't even have to think about it since we have the cash. Um, And then some questions about kids' college and what should we really do with that extra money to build in some flexibility? And and how do I balance um, spending now versus saving for a future? Because as Mindy mentioned, um, because I come from a very much of a scarcity mindset and having money is... um, somewhat new to me. Um, it's trying to balance all of that and enjoy now as opposed to just always looking at the future. Well, let's start with flexibility here first as a theme. And let's just acknowledge your, your portfolio, portfolio, um, appraisingly from, from an outsider's perspective, what was the total amount in retirement accounts again, Mindy? $495,333. Okay, great. And we've got a home equity balance of 600,000. So that's a 1.1 million 
of your 1.3 million, just in those two things, you got another $30,000 in cars, um, an equity and value in your cars, $151,000 in cash. So the cash is the first place we get to in this discussion that says flexibility, right? That that's the only part of your, of your, of your, of your portfolio that offers. So you're doing great, um, from this, but now let me ask you this. If, if, uh, you had a pile of $1.3 million in cash right now, what was, what would a flexible situation look like to you? Forget all your, all your assets. What, what would you, what would you build from there? From there, um, I would probably, one of my passions is actually financial literacy for children. So I would probably figure out a way to spend some of my time to volunteer to teach children financial literacy. Sorry, that, that's um, awesome. I, what, what you use the flexibility yeah. for is great. What, yeah. what financial position oh. would you build with your, if, if I gave you $1.3 million in cash Oh, right I get now, what you're saying. And okay. I said, and you said, how do you want to invest that? What is funny? What does a flexible financial position look like? For me, that would be money potentially in an after, um, like an after-tax account, a brokerage account that then is generating dividends, or potentially in real estate. Um, either live in, we either continue this live and flip, or um, investment properties that we buy and then flip. I'm not sure that I want to be a landlord. Great. So I'm gonna I'm gonna spitball this, and you tell you you react to it. So let's say let's yep. say that your position instead of looking like what it looks like today, look like this: hundred thousand dollars in cash in the bank, no debt. Um, besides home mortgage, $200,000 in home mortgage equity, 500,000 in after-tax dividends and 500,000 in rental real estate equity across a portfolio of a couple rentals. What is that portfolio? You feel better? Much better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Cause I'm diversified and it's not in right now. It feels very much like we have money that's locked up until we're 59, right. And our 401ks and then in our home. And so we'd have to sell our home. So that to me, um, it's flexible. So, so I, I, you don't have to take, let's, let's use that as our straw man for today's discussion. Um, that portfolio yep. again, $100,000 in cash, 200,000 in home equity with a mortgage for the rest, 500,000 in real estate equity yep. and 500,000 in index funds. Okay. Um, and let's presume it's all after tax for now. Um, oh, what, what you're currently doing, where's that going to lead you in two years? Right. And, and, in terms of max, you're going to save 3000 a month and then 41,000 in these, in these things. Plus you have huge lump paydays coming right mm -hmm. um, from your bonuses. So what, 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 what will happen if you keep on your current track, what will your portfolio look like in two years? So current track is those 401k balances are going to continue to build current track. Uh, what we were doing and what we did last year was we dumped the money into our home. So paying off the mortgage, which at this point at a 2.5% rate, I don't think is worth it with the equity that we have. Um, so right now it's either I dump it into a savings account, which is not going to do anything, or we throw it into a VTI in an after-tax account. Okay. So what, what I'm hearing that what, if, if you continue doing what you're doing, that's what we would be doing. Yeah. Yep. Then you'll pile up another $50,000 in cash, another 80,000, 90,000, 100,000 yep. in your 401k and another 100,000 in home equity. Correct. In 2 years. Which is awesome wealth building. You're building a lot of wealth, but you're not achieving your goal of financial flexibility if you do that. So, Correct. what I think I think what what I would I suggest from a strategic sense is sit down with your partner and think about, hey, if I could reset this whole thing, what would it look like? Um, from that, would I be more comfortable with that? Okay. Now let's dramatically change the profile of what we're doing here to match that reality that I want to get to. And you will have some painful 
not painful. It won't be painful. It will be, it will be big and will feel uncomfortable, um, decisions. If for example, you were like, Hey, in two years, uh, our net worth should be 1.5 or 1.6 million with our wealth accumulation rate. Essentially all of that accumulation needs to happen in after-tax brokerage accounts or real estate to begin even moving me slightly towards this, this new goal. And that's going to come at the, at the expense of investing in these, um, in the IRAs or whatever with that. And that, that's going to be a challenge to, to think through because you're going to lose tax advantages and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's going to be part of the, the trade-off potentially of, of building in that, fle- that flexible position. At what point do you know if you can um, no longer save your, in your 401ks? Do you think we're at that point where we should, if we want that flexibility, we should drastically change I, I think it's advantage? An, I think it's an art and you guys are in a privileged position where you, you could max out both for, for you have enough income where you can max out both 401ks and that's 80, that's 41 grand or 81 grand. That's correct. 41. Four, so 81, 82 is two years. That's 20, 25 each. Yep. So, so that leaves you with three, with 290 left over in income. You need 120 to pay for your lifestyle and mm-hmm. you're going to have 80 go to taxes. That leaves you with 50 grand left over after all of that, that you can deploy towards your wealth. So the question is, and what is your, walk me through your housing expense, because that's 4,500 of your expense. Yeah. So what I have in there is, so where we live, um, unfortunately the t- real estate taxes are high. Mm-hmm. Um, and we happen to be in Texas and that's one of the things we, we don't have a state income tax, but they get their money in other ways. One of them being real estate taxes. So in terms of our housing expenses, we, our real estate taxes are almost a thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Um, our mortgage is only 1767. Um, and then, um, from there we've got our utilities, which add about, uh, $600 to $700. Um, I would say about $600 a month in utilities. And then I've got a repair fund in there and stuff like that. And we also just recently started getting a house cleaner and our lawn care, which I count in there as well, which again, we could cut that, um, right now we're just at a point where we're trying to save our time. Um, so that we can spend our weekends with the kids as opposed to cleaning and doing lawn work. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I think outsourcing lawn maintenance and those types of things makes sense for someone who makes 330,000, a couple of makes $330,000 per year would not make sense for someone making $80,000 per year. Um, but, right. but I mean, okay. Um, what is the house worth? Um, just under a million dollars, just under a million dollars. Okay. So, yeah. so that, I think that that is that is a big one for you guys to think through. I have a comment. Okay. So she didn't buy it for a million dollars or just under a million. We did not. She bought it for a significant discount and she's in that weird space where they bought it a couple of years ago. It has appreciated so much. Where would they go that they could reduce Mm. their housing cost and maintain the same level of housing uh, comfort? So I think there's a lot of people that we're going to start talking to in this same situation where it's kind of going to be really difficult to reduce your housing expenses because there's not really any place to go that's going to be any cheaper. I mean, she might be able to go get a $600,000 house instead of a $900,000 house or whatever, but it's, you know, it's going to come with a higher interest rate. She's got a 2.5% interest rate. I actually know a lot more about her numbers 
that maybe she shared. She gave me this big email. Um, but I wanted to jump in here and say something else. So you're asking about, should you continue to contribute to the 401k? Do either of your companies have a match program? They do. Yes. yes. Okay. So mine matches up to 4% of my salary. Okay. So so if I put in, in a 50%, so if I put in 8%, they'll do 4%. So I get a 12% of my salary in total. That is, uh, what do we call that, Scott? Free money. I would continue to put that in if you can comfortably do so, which your numbers say to me you can. Does your husband's company have a match program? They do. Okay. I need to get the details on that. They took it away during part of COVID um, and then it it just came back. So I need to get the details on him. Okay. So I would say look into the match and see if there's any sort of um, like, I mean, if you have, if they match like 1% on, you know, if it doesn't make any sense, then no. But right now, according to the rule of 72 and past performance is not indicative of future gain, but the rule of 72 says that on average, your your uh, stock holdings will double approximately every seven to eight years. I did seven years because that's easier for me for math. So at age 40, where you are right now, you have $495,000. At age 47, you will have $990,000. But age 54 is when it gets really fun. million at age 54, at age 61, 3.9 million, and at age 68, 7.9 million. And that's just an average return. We have been seeing outsized returns. You may not see quite this much. You might see a lot more. I mean, you're in VTI, you're in the entire stock market and a rising tide lifts all ships. And how many other cliches can we throw out here, Scott? But that's that's a sizable amount of money. And more than we honestly need again, Um, coming from a scarcity mindset that can seem really, uh, and, and you're still going to contribute to that the whole time if you take the match. So, so even if you don't get those returns, that return profile, um, that the average rule 72 depends on, which is about 10%. Um, some people think that's aggressive. You're still probably going to have four, five, six, seven, eight million dollars in there. Um, at, at 68 at, at, um, um, with that, with, with, with that. So I, I think that that's the big decision here is you can't have it all. Um, you've got a great income. You, you can get a lot of what you want. You can get a lot of options, but you can't have your whole set of options. You can't go way, way down your whole stack of maxing out these retirement accounts, college saving plans, all this other stuff and buy real estate assets and build a massive after-tax brokerage position. So you you have to prioritize with, with some of those things. And again, I think the best way to do that, I think that answer may be already becoming clear to you when you just think through, hey, I have 1.53 million bucks. How would I allocate it um, if I were starting with a blank piece of paper? Um, and and if you just begin backing into that, then you can take make those decisions over the next two or three years and say, great, that's that's what I'm going to get to. And it will, it will continue to accelerate most likely. Um, from, there'll be some setbacks and there'll be some wins. Um, hopefully that will, that will help you kind of, um, put that and you can say, okay, in five years or 10 years, my portfolio should look like it's, up, you know, between two and a half and $3 million between hopefully some appreciation and, you know, my income savings and all that. And it should look like this. That's a reasonable thing here. I'm not going to liquidate my house. Maybe, maybe you like, yeah. that would be the fastest thing you could do is liquidate. The I, house. I, which is something that I am considering, but as Mindy was mentioning, um, we would 
have to move from this area. Yeah. Um, well, well, that's one thing to consider. So let's, let's just, let's just do a straw man there. You have 600,000 in equity in that house and at a 10% return rate, you'd be generating $60,000 per year on that equity. Um, with something else, your house is also going to appreciate. Let's assume it's going to appreciate at three point four percent per year. So your spread there is the seven, six and a half, seven percent. That's going to be thirty five, forty grand a year, right? Can you rent a place for thirty five or forty grand a year? Um, that is that is going to meet meet all your your requirements and put all of that equity to work in rental real estate, for example. Would that, I, I don't know, that, that might be a preposterous uh, suggestion. It also might be an interesting thought exercise to walk through. Yeah, where we're located right now, um, rents are about 7000 a month, which is just uh, hard to even imagine um, So, because of when we bought <laughs> and I would never pay that much. So I think this is something to consider if we would consider relocating yeah. um, to a different area. Yeah. So, so I think, I think that would be, that would be, that would be great. You don't have to do that. You, you have the luxury of making enough mm-hmm. income to have lots of good options. But if you were saying, Hey, I wanted to right. trans to, to transform my, my situation to something much more flexible, man, you could have a hundred thousand dollars in cash and put your $600,000 in equity to work. You also have 50,000 additional in cash. You have 150 right now. So you could, you could put 650 yeah. to work in essentially instantly, um, in a portfolio after tax, if you decided to relocate. And so that would be the absolute fastest move to get towards flexibility would be, would be making a decision with that. After that, I think that you, you kind of have, you can have a choice of, okay, I'm going to probably wind down these retirement account things, um, as much as possible or as much as practical, maybe take the match and begin deploying that and knowing I'm going to accumulate at a rate of 50 to a hundred thousand a year, um, in in liquid, and then begin plowing that into, a rental property or an after-tax brokerage account or a combination of that. If you, if you like that portfolio we talked about earlier. Now, what, would you suggest obviously bigger pockets is, um, real estate investing, but, um, would you suggest that someone in this position look at real estate as opposed to just after-tax accounts? I think you guys are on a bubble, um, for that. I think that, um, the price to get into real estate investing is, you know, 250 to 500 hours of self-education. Um, that is a expensive self-education at your hourly rate. Um, mate. So I don't know. It, it depends. You know, I, if you want, if you want to get to $10 million in real estate wealth over the next 15 years, you should definitely do that. If you're looking to get to flexibility in five to seven years, you may not need to do that. So that will be the trade-off. I think that you're going to have to think you could, you could probably achieve that by making a big move with your house and then putting, plowing a lot into after-tax brokerage accounts. What, what do you think, Mindy? I am thinking back to episode 260, where you told Madison that she makes too much money to be spending her time uh, learning how to invest in real estate and that she should instead focus on the stock. Madison earned 300,000 her, on her own, Right. Did she? I can't remember the exact details of her money situation, but I know they made a lot of money. And weren't they in real estate? Or maybe they weren't. I can't. I should really listen to these episodes again. I I should listen to all the episodes before I record every episode. But um, I remember saying that you saying that that she would have so many hours to devote 
to learning about real estate, that that may not be the best use of her time. Um, What I'm wondering is, April, where would you invest in real estate? Texas is expensive. It would probably, it wouldn't be Texas. Um, just because of the, especially the real estate taxes and where I see them going. And honestly, when we retire, I don't think we'll retire here because of that. It's so funny Um, because we were on a meetup in San Diego. We were in a San Diego virtual meetup, maybe a year ago, Mindy and I, and all the folks from San Francisco were at the meetup because the real estate's so much cheaper in San Diego. And all the San Diego people are talking about how much cheaper the real estate is in Denver um, than San Diego and how the cash flow is way better. And all the Denver people are like the Midwest and Texas yeah. where all the cash flow is. And you're like, you're not going in Texas because the, the taxes are too high. So around and around the circle, the circle we go yep. um, with, with, with uh, where the best market is. I think people don't realize that the taxes are really expensive. She said her property taxes are $1,000 a month. When I moved from Wisconsin to Colorado, my property tax bill in Wisconsin was my entire mortgage payment in Colorado. And that was a huge difference. And of course, it was a bigger house. Colorado's a nice place. Uh, It was a different house. It was a different time. But that was still such a change to my finances. And, you know, I would say if you want to invest in real estate, make a list of the places that you like the affordable places where, you know, people, maybe you're from Ohio or Indianapolis or Kansas City or, you know, one of those places. Unfortunately, we're from up northeast. Okay, well, that's not affordable. (laughs) But um, yeah, (laughs) you will also meet the criteria for an accredited investor because of your income. You will not meet it with your net worth okay. because it's too much of it is in your primary, but your okay. your income will allow you to do that. So you could consider syndication investments as well if you're looking for a more passive alternative to. I've heard those are hit or miss though, and you can really do well or not so much. Yes, you will need to invest fifty. And you don't have control. Fifty to a hundred thousand per investment, um, but it is a way to potentially get into real estate if you still have to spend let's call it a quarter to a third to a half of the time uh, that you would learning about how to invest in, in real estate as an active manager of the asset to, in order to, to get a good feel for that stuff. But you could put in, you know, five or, you know, 10 syndication investments over the next couple of years that will give you, that would allow you to diversify across a couple of different syndicators and different assets that might help you achieve the, the same benefits of real estate investing more passively. If you felt that, the time commitment for real estate was too large to to do in a traditional sense. And I'm going to plug episode 219 with Jay Scott. He sat down with us for two hours and explained how syndications work, how to vet them. Um, he gave suggestions like, hey, sign up for a syndicator and go to or sign up with like just to get on their mailing list and go to one of their webinars and see the questions that people are asking. Ask questions yourself. See what's going on. And so you'll start to learn a lot more when you can ask questions directly. And syndicators will answer a lot of questions because they want you to invest with them. They're, they want to be really open and honest. And I mean, that's a really w- easy way to vet them is when you ask a question and they're like, mm, let me get back to you. Well, why you should have all these answers. Um, so, uh, let's see. So yeah, I want to, if you want to invest in real estate, I think real estate's great. I, uh, work at bigger pockets. Of course I love real estate, but, um, I would say make a list of the 
the areas that you want to invest in and then start looking at what's available. I mean, just at a very high level, go to realtor.com and let's call it Indianapolis just to give a name. I had Indianapolis actually <laughs> in my mind because there's a, a, I've heard the price point is um, attractive, if you will. Yeah. So uh, look in and see what, what would it cost me? What is the state of that property? What would it rent for? And, you know, how does this, how do I feel about this? Hop on a plane and go to Indianapolis and, you know, have an agent ahead of time, but talk to people in Indianapolis and see some of these houses and see what they're renting for and make a good decision based on, you know, being there. You are a cautious person. So I don't think that investing sight unseen is a great choice for you. I think that you should go there and see what you're going to buy, at least in the beginning. And then once you have an agent that you can trust, you know, maybe you can buy sight unseen, but in the beginning, taxes will also be high in Indianapolis. Good to know. Well, high relative to the price point, but they're not like, it's not a thousand dollars a month. A similar percentage of home value will probably go to property taxes in Indianapolis as Texas or as Austin, Texas, but you will also have lower property values. So yeah, right. I think that's fair. Okay. And rents. Scott, I want to talk about her cash situation. It's a little high. Yeah. It's like my blankie. <laughs> you have $151,000 in cash. Why? And where is it? Is it just like under the mattress or is it in a high yield savings account? Is it in an easy to access bond fund? Is there any sort of like, is it just super, super liquid in a checking account? Great question. So we had um, a certain percentage of it, uh, just under 40K was in a high um, savings yield account, but um, that is now down to 0.5% when I looked at it or even lower when I looked at it last. So it's earning close to nothing. Um, And then we do have the remainder um, over 100K just sitting in a, a lovely plain old checking and money market account, not making close to any money at all. So I am very aware that that is um, not the best place for it. Um, however, um, given my past history, I, I, I wasn't able to give the background here, but our first house that we purchased, um, we were able to turn um, a $10,000 investment in it into $117,000 in cash when we sold it five years later. So, and that was... Um, life-changing, if you will. Um, however, during the five years that we're in that house, we were com- overextended um, between the taxes that went, um, our taxes increased over 50% the time we were there and the payments, it was about 50% of our take-home pay was going just to put the roof over our head without um, any um, utilities and such. So uh, that was um, from 2011 to 20, sorry, 2012, we bought that house to 2017, um, just kind of stretched financially. So we were able to get that money. So then once we got that money, I used it to pay off debt, my um, husband's school loans, and then a, a bunch of it just went and sat. And then we purchased our next home and used part of it for that. But basically our second house that we bought, we did a live and flip as well. Um, we downsized quite a bit, um, but we walked away from that house with $168,000 because we'd paid down the principal. So basically just kept trying to roll the money into houses. And then anything that was left over, I just parked it in cash because that's my um, blankie. If you will, like I said, it's like, you know, the, the soothing mechanism that lets me sleep at night to know that, um, if 
um, myself or my husband were to lose our job, that we would be fine for an extended period of time. Okay. Um, I think in talking to you both, I'm now realizing that our retirement assets could also be used um, in a dire situation um, to help us. And so I think I have to realize maybe we're past the point where um, I'm not sure how we're going to pay this month's um, bills and can maybe take on some um, more risk. Yeah. So I, I, I actually don't think your cash position is that unreasonable. I think it's a little high. Okay. But like you, you think six to 12 months is a really reasonable cash position. Um, and your cash position is probably like 18 months. So you could probably wind it down to like 120 or 100,000. And that okay. puts you at close to a year from a cash position. Um, yep. But I, I don't think it's an uh, egregious amount of too much no. cash um, from that. I would all I could argue that you could go down to three months because you both have stable jobs and your monthly mm-hmm. cash flow is able to do that. But if you like having the extra cash, that's there. You do also, I would not tap your retirement accounts as a source of liquidity. I'd tap your home equity as a source of liquidity if you needed it um, with a HELOC instead of instead of thinking about the, the so so I think you I think you have access to three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars in liquidity if you needed it in a pinch. Um, and you will probably never need it <laughs> um, with the situation yeah. that you've you've got here from from your cash position. So I, I think that your first if you want if you wanted to move toward flexibility tomorrow, the first thing would be to consider moving or relocating and redeploy the six hundred thousand in home equity into after tax investments in stocks or real estate or a combination or something else like that. Um, and deploy $50,000 of the cash cease or dramatically reduce the contributions to your pre-tax or, um, or tax deferred, um, uh, retirement accounts like the 401k, except for the match and begin generating a hundred thousand dollars per year in liquidity. And within two, three, four years, you have a really good shot at having a million dollars outside of your 401ks in assets that will provide flexibility to some degree. How much cash flow you generate will be dependent on the risks and the real estate and the stock and the bond mix that you choose. But that would be one way to get there very, very quickly. Other options to get there, which will just take maybe just a few years longer because of your great situation, would just be continue to do what you're doing and shifting that allocation out of the 401k and into the after-tax stuff. Maybe deploying $50,000 in cash right now. But that, that'd be how I'd think about it at a high level. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. 
This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. NetSuite.com slash BP money. Is that helpful? No, that's very helpful. Thank you. Because I hadn't thought about it um, in that way. I think I just always thought if you can max out your 401k, max it out, and hadn't thought about maybe how we could dial that back to then um, use that money to help us build additional flexibility. And um, the house is something I'm going to have to have a discussion with my husband on <laughs> to figure out. Yeah, the trade-off with all that is if you came in and said, my goal is to maximize the pile size at yep. 68, it's not- then we'd be saying, go all in on the 401k. That's a continue doing that yeah. and minimizing your tax burden with that um, and find a way to, to, arbit- to arbitrage that with a rollover or conversion ladder um, downstream, um, which could also be an option. But um, 
that would be that would be one one way. Actually, that is one thing we could we could talk about here is the conversion ladder. One th- thought here is like suppose you wanted to just totally call it quits in five years or ten years. You could continue maxing out these four hundred one k plans. And when you stop working, you generate no income. You can begin a conversion ladder, moving the the funds from the 401k into a Roth. It has to sit there for five years after you convert it, but then you can begin withdrawing much of that principal that you've invested, uh, that you put into the 401k plans um, out of your Roth because it'll be, it'll be principal. So there is a long-term planning approach you could do to take advantage of those 401k plans, but I think that it will somewhat limit your flexibility because you'll be baked into has to be sitting there for five years after the conversion. And you got to be really careful and, and think long-term and strategically. So I don't like that approach personally, and I don't do it and plan my life around that, but it is an option that's worth noting. I like that approach. I think I had listened to one of your, I think I had listened to one of your podcasts on that, right? Was it the, um, I think you guys have covered that before. Yes. Okay. I like that approach. I am planning on doing that when I no longer am generating income right now. I am generating too much income to be able to take advantage of that, uh, from a good tax perspective. We talked with the mad scientist back on either episode 17 or 18 about that plan and he has a an article called How to Access Retirement Funds Early that covers a variety of uh, different ways to access your retirement funds early. And uh, he was on episode 18. He really easily explains how it goes. Um, there's, there's several different ways to do that uh, because right now you don't qualify for contributing to a Roth Traditionally, there's the backdoor Roth and the mega backdoor Roth. Um, But I think that if you want to get into real estate, your funds can be used in a different way. Uh, I think that a research opportunity for you and your husband is to look at what is the bare minimum of cash that you feel comfortable with. And Scott had a good point. He doesn't think that this is an egregious amount of cash. I look at this and I think 150, that's a lot of money. Well, that's, what is that? A year's worth of spending, 13 or 14 months of spending. That's not outrageous. I don't hold cash, but I have a lot of different buckets to pull from. Should I stop generating income? Um, which isn't going to happen anytime soon. Another thing to think about is, and this is kind of in tandem with the bare minimum of cash, is how easy would it be for you to go and get another job at the same level? How easy would it be for your husband to go and get another job at the same level? Um, And unrelated but sort of related is tapping into your equity. I think that it would be interesting to start looking at a HELOC. Scott brought this up, the home equity line of credit. You don't have to use this right now, but it you are qualified based on your home, the equity you have in your home and your ability to pay it back, which is your income. So right now, when you have a really high income, you would be qualified for the most amount of home equity line of credit that you would probably ever get. Um, and then when, should you need money, you can just pull into that right away. They're not going to give that to you. Should, let's say your company goes out of business tomorrow, they won't give you a HELOC when you don't have a job. And so with the home equity line of credit, just cause I'm not familiar with it. Cause I just, um, I tend to shy away from debt. 
Um, but but the idea would be, could open that up. It just sits there. And until we use it, it just would basically be an open line of credit that's available. Should we need it? Yes. Okay. And it is, I have one and I currently owe $0 on it. So, but I have, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollars available to me. Should I need to use it? And then, but I don't owe anything until I actually pull that money out. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a valuable tool to have access to. You don't have to use it. If you do use it, think of it as a short-term debt, like your, maybe not credit card debt, but close. Like, think about it as like, I'm going to pay it back within a year or two. Um, I'm not going to borrow this for a long time. This is not a down payment on a rental property in your situation, I don't think. Um, right. Unless you're going to plan to like flip it really quickly and pay it back. It's a better source of hard money, for example, than a hard money loan. Um, but Exactly. Yeah. Let's say you start looking at houses, you find one in Indianapolis, and it is a cash-only deal. This allows you to grab the money out. You can pay for the property in cash. And then once you own it, you can cash out refi the property down the road. Um, I have a question about your RSUs as well. You get approximately $20,000 a year. Are you able to sell those at any time? And what are you doing with them? I've been selling them immediately and then it goes into cash. It goes into cash. Okay. Um, yeah, I just sell it and then I cashed out and then, um, so I, w- I would think through, okay. So I think this is a good point. I would think through that and I would say, um, is there a tax angle? This would be a great time to talk to a tax person and say, am I getting taxed at long-term capital gains rates or short-term capital gains rates? Because, you know, as long as your company doesn't go belly up or have a huge problem, it'll probably make sense to hang on to them long enough to get a long-term tax capital gain on that. After that, you can make a decision. Do I want to be invested in the company or do I want to be invested in something else? Um, so you could sell it and then transfer it into your index fund, for example, or a real estate investment or, or, or towards your real estate fund, um, if you want to do that. But I think that would be a a little, a, a mini homework assignment that could, um, could be valuable for you. That's good. I had looked at it before, but I should probably talk to them and um, a tax professional. The reason that I've done that is because when they grant them to me, um, I, they actually show up on my W-2 um, as um, income. And so they take out a percentage to cover the taxes. Oh. And then whatever I get left over is there. Um, but I should just probably do some more homework and double check. Well, they, they, probably, they have value at the time that they're granted. And then they change Correct. in value over time. You may not be able to yeah. sell them immediately after they're granted. You may have to hold them for some time. Is that right? Yes. Then they're all going to be long-term capital gains. They, yep. They grant them to me. Um, it's vested. And then, yep, I get them. And so then I've been selling them. Okay. So you, you probably don't have a tax angle there at, at the end of the day. You probably just, you know, have to have a, a thesis. Here's my portfolio. Going back to what we talked about earlier. Here's what I want my portfolio to look like. And any excess cash is going to go here first, here for second, here third, according to my intentional strategy, it's going to get me to flexibility at this time. Okay. So I have a friend who works for a big name company that you would recognize, and I'm not going to name it, um, who gets these same RSUs and he Should holds I change them. my name to the last name, to the name of that company? No. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're right down the road. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that one. Oh, okay. Um, this is more of like a rainforest company. Um, not the rainforest cafe. Uh, 
He works there, he gets his RSUs, and he holds them because he believes in the long-term viability of the company. I have another friend at another big-name company who, as soon as he gets his RSUs and can sell them, he instantly sells them and puts them into uh, VTSAX because his plan is to only have uh, index funds. So I'm wondering why you are holding this money in cash instead of putting it into an index fund. And I'm just asking, I'm not like trying to make you feel bad about your choice. No, absolutely. Because I just, um, in December, I just started doing 500 a month into VTI. Um, and so I've just started getting comfortable with doing an after-tax account. Um, and so that is something that I've thought about is going forward when I sell them, because I do believe in index fund investing would be to take that money and put it into VTI. Yeah. I, have you read The Simple Path to Wealth? I have. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a great book. I think that's a really solid choice, the index fund. Um, we are transitioning out of holding individual stocks until Carl gets a wild hair up his nose and then he's like, oh, let's buy this. Okay, fine. Um, he seems to be doing pretty well with that strategy. <laughs> well, <sighs> Yes, but I don't know. It's it, like at the, that's another story for another day. Well, because it's hard because if you believe in a company, you think, oh, it's going to do well. But at the same time, I like the idea of not having to worry about what's doing well and what's not doing well and just kind of riding the wave, if you will. Of Yes. Well, everybody knows Carl loves Tesla. Let's look at Tesla. Tesla stock was going along just fine. And then he went on the Elon Musk went on the Joe Rogan show and there was a big dip because he smoked pot with Joe Rogan yep. and then it came back up mm-hmm. and then it goes down and it goes up. And if you want a roller coaster, just follow Tesla. I mean, it, it's going up now, which is awesome. And there's supposed to be a big split. And I mean, I'm not complaining that we hold it, but if you can't stomach the up and downs, then index funds is where you should be. You, did you have some other questions outside of the flexibility thing that we've spent most of the time on that you wanted to, us to cover today? Yeah. Um, one of them was, you know, I've been keeping a car loan. It's only 500 a month. I say only, but, um, should I just pay that off since we have the cash for that? What's the interest rate? Um, uh, 3.5%. What's the interest rate on your mortgage? 2.5%. I'd pay it off before I pay off the mortgage, but I wouldn't pay off either early. Got it. Personally. Because the interest rate's so low. I would not yeah. pay off the yeah. mortgage at all early in my, if I was in your position. Um, the car loan, I don't know. I I identify with the whole, I want to be debt free. I don't consider mortgage debt to be debt and I don't care about that. But with the car loan, I see why you would want to pay it off. You have the cash to do so, if it weighs heavily on your mind to have this loan out, I would pay it off just to get it done. And then take the 500 that you've been paying towards your loan and put it into the stock market. Oh, it would definitely be better. If you're just going to have a big pile of cash, it definitely is better to pay off the car loan. So you might consider, I'm just going to pay it off and then going to rebuild my cash position to whatever I'm comfortable with. That would make sense rather than building the cash position and then Got it. Yeah. Or if you're not paying the entire thing off, like go back to that research opportunity. What's the bare minimum you feel comfortable with? If it's, you know, 12 months of spending, that's like 132,000. You could almost pay off your car loan with that, um, the extra cash, that Delta. And then 
in that case, I would pay it off and then just throw that 500 a month back into the emergency fund until it built up to where you were comfortable and then start throwing that 500 into the VTI again. And then my other, that that's helpful. Uh, and then my other question was just related to college savings for my children. I have two kids, six and eight right now. Um, and we have 529 plans for them. Um, and we currently put in about 200 a month. And so we have about $40,000 right now in there, 529. I don't go back and forth. We don't know what college is going to look like for our kids. If, if they're going to go, if they're going to get scholarships. I mean, you just start to think about all these things. Do we just kind of stop that and just let it ride and then know that given our financial position, we could probably cash flow college if they do decide to go? I have two kids, 15 and 12, and I have saved $0 in a 529 plan for both of them because I don't know, even now, I don't know if they're going to go to college, although I hope so. Um, They're both very smart. They both want to do big things, but maybe they change their mind. I mean, 15 years old, she's already changed her mind like six times. Um, And the 12 year old hasn't even started yet. She wants to go to college this week and next week she doesn't. And what we have done instead is just continue to invest in the stock market. And that is my money, not hers. And when it comes time to pay for college, I would like her to have a little bit of skin in the game. I feel like my parents gave me such a gift by paying for my college, but I also, and I really shouldn't complain. I'm such a horrible person for complaining, but like, I wish I would have had a little bit more guidance. Don't study fashion design, Mindy. You don't care. It's not your passion. Go with, you know, business or something more generic so that you can at least have, you know, a fighting chance of getting a good job instead of the not great jobs that I had for so many years. Um, but I think that continuing to save for college for them doesn't necessarily have to be in a 529 plan. Maybe you open up that's kind of what I was thinking. Another brokerage okay. account. And now this is for child number one and this is for child number two. And we continue to put money in there because the 529 plan, I believe the way it works is like you've put in a total of ten thousand, but it's grown to twenty-nine thousand and they don't go to college. Well, here you can have the ten thousand back. Not all twenty-nine. That's for I don't even know where it goes, but you can have what you put into it, and that's it. And that seems really unfair. Whereas if you did it into an after-tax brokerage account, all that money's yours, and you can put it towards college. You can put it towards whatever. Yeah. I, I completely agree with what Mindy's saying, with a couple of twists. So for, first, so so for, first, I am I, for my future children. Um, Maybe, 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 maybe sooner than later. We'll see. Um, uh, on that, uh, I do not plan to put any money into a 529 plan. I don't think it's bad to have money in a 529 plan, um, but I don't plan to do it because I think that the best option is to just build general wealth and flexibility um, for my family so that I can provide lots of good options while they're growing up and with respect to college, right? So, you know, an au pair or uh, a nice house in this in this school district or private school, if they if that's what we decide they they need, um, could be more valuable than just the college. And that's some of those things may I guess I guess the some of those things could be paid for with five twenty nine and some can't. Um, so I, I don't I don't like the constrictions that would come with the five twenty nine plan. And then um, 
And I think I can just build the wealth in general in real estate and other other areas and, and harness it to pay for those things as they come up. And that will be a better, more advantageous as a holistic strategy. Second, I am skeptical. And we'll, we'll, uh, someone will have to come back and ping me in 20 years and see if this is correct or not. Um, but uh, I, I wonder aloud if college education is going to be much cheaper in 20 years than it is today relative to in, in, in at least real dollars, right? Maybe nominally it's more expensive because inflation booms, but um, you just think there's a ton of people with student loans right now, and that's going to come to a head in the next couple of years in one way or another. Either it's going to get canceled um, by one political party, and if it gets canceled, they're going to reform, I, I imagine, how you get new loans in the future, which will change the way that you can, if you can't get loans in the same way for fashion degree, um, sorry, Mindy, uh, uh, fashion design degrees, then that is going to reduce the cost of fashion design school, right? Because people just can't afford it. They will, will literally won't be able to pay for it without getting debt. Therefore, the costs will come down because demand's going to come down. Um, so either that's going to happen or they're going to reform the debt without canceling a lot of the student loan debt. I, I just think one of those two outcomes has to happen in the next five to 10 years because it's it's just a huge mess right now. Um, and either way, the conclusion's the same. There's going to be a reform in the way that you can get debt for these schools. And then third, I think that there's a fundamental thing that's related to that problem about whether college is a good ROI or not. And we just had um, Preston Cooper um, on the show recently to talk about the uh, the, the the rising or the 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 ROI of various degrees. And I think that research is going to be very powerful. And people are only going to accept degrees that are very strongly in the positive from an ROI perspective, and that have very quick payback periods. Especially if we reform student debt and say. Hey, for example, this student loan is now subject to bank bankruptcy protection. So if, you know, that would be the simplest way to solve this whole problem, in my opinion, not to get too political, right? You just, Hey, I get a loan and then I just go declare bankruptcy. So no one's going to lend you money. Um, uh, if they, if, if it's a bad ROI, because you're going to declare bankruptcy in a few years. So it's going to be much more reasonable amounts that people can pay back very quickly. For example, um, would be one way to, to solve that. So that's my uh, high-level thoughts on college education. I'm not going to save in a 529 plan because of lack of flexibility and because I don't think I'm going to need quite as much as you need today for college education. We'll see if that gamble pays off, but I don't know. Yeah, and that's kind of where, where I was kind of leaning as well, just because my personal education, I had scholarships. Um, you know, I, had, I went to a state school top of my class. So I was able to go for pretty much free. Anything that I didn't get a scholarship for, I got other scholarships for, you know, 2000 here, a thousand here, and then cash flowed by working part-time jobs. So my concern is that, are we at a point where if we keep saving, is this going to get used? And is there a better way for us to allocate the cash at this point in time? And I think the answer to that is yes. Um, we're better off taking that money every month and throwing it um, in an index fund um, that we can use for whatever purpose we want, whether it be college or a certificate program for them or who knows what. So great. Thank you. That's helpful. Yeah. And you have a decent amount of money in the 529 plans, 28,000 in, I'm assuming the older child and 10,000 in the younger child. Yeah. I just looked up what can you use the 529 plan for computers, software, the cost of internet access, um, the expenses related to students with special needs, students living off campus, rent utilities, and food not purchased directly from the college may qualify. Um, 
$10,000 per year per designated beneficiary for tuition, um, expenses for fees and books. So it's not just tuition. It's it's, you know, a room and board as well. And, you know, yeah, a lot of that can be covered from a scholarship as well, but that's still, I mean, you look at the cost of college and it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. And I don't mean to make light of your situation, but you've saved a, you know, meager $40,000 for that. Mm -hmm. I think that I wouldn't, if I was in this financial position, I wouldn't put any more in, but I don't think that it is a wrong move to have done it so far. Completely agree. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think you could say the great, great thing to have 40,000 in there that'll grow rule of 72, uh, for college anyways, and be there. And then you'll probably have, you, 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 you might, you might wish you had a little bit more, but you might, but it might be a better bet to put it into more flexible alternatives. Helpful. Thank you so very much. All right. And uh, yeah, I think that's in terms of, it's just really what I've just, I talked to Mindy about this, um, before was, um, the only other thing that I'm just grappling with is just the fact that our spending per month is 10,000 just to me seems um, crazy. Um, and so what I've been trying to figure out is, you know, justifying spending money on things that we enjoy now. Um, as opposed to saving for the future. So let's walk through a couple of those real quick. We already went through housing, transportation, yep. you crush if you pay off the, the car loan, right? Uh, that, yes. that gets eradicated. Your food budget's not out yep. of control. Um, your giving budget is for, for super reasonable. That leaves us with insurance and tax and lifestyle. Lifestyle is not crazy. Walk us through insurance and tax. What's going on there? Sure. So 1500 a month. Yeah. Yep. So we've got life insurance, um, which is, um, we pay about $180 a month and that's term life insurance for me and my husband. Um, so that if something were to happen, we're covered. Um, and then we've got auto insurance at 225 and then the bulk of it is actually an estimated taxes. I put away, um, 1100 a month for that. Um, this past year, um, we owed, uh, just under $10,000 in extra taxes because of the fact that we get paid out in bonuses. Um, and so that impacts, um, when our accountant does our taxes, how much we owe. So this year we had 13,000 that we had to pay for 2022 in estimated taxes. So your, your employers are paying you a bonus, but not withholding the federal taxes. They are, they are withholding federal taxes, but because when you combine our two incomes and we're both getting bonuses, it, it pushes us over. Okay. So, so you can resolve that issue with uh, by contacting your HR departments, okay, um, and thinking about how uh, and just at uh, tweaking the withholding amounts from your paycheck um, with that. So okay. I think that's a call with your. I, I think you have to do a little bit of homework, but you should be able to get the a correct amount withheld from your paycheck if you'd like to. And you you prob some people like to pay less and then pay the government the three percent fee. I don't enjoy yeah. it. <laughs> but I, I would yeah, okay. I, I would get on the phone with your HR department and tell them what's up and, and they will they will likely be able to withhold the correct amount of estimated taxes. So you don't you don't owe a big a big thing at the end of the year. Instead you'll you'll get a refund or ideally close to zero as possible. Great. That's a great. I will do that. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Cause that's always a fun surprise. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, so yeah, that, that could bring that down quite a bit then. Um, if we're able to get it on the front end. Yeah. That, so, okay. So we, we, we've really got, 
you could probably bring down your expenses by about $2,000 a month by making that tweak and then paying off the car if you so choose, maybe 1500 to 2000 And then there's other puts and takes you could put in there, but you really don't have an unreasonable spending profile with the exception of the housing expense, which is, which is crazy high, (laughs) not crazy high, but like that's, that's the, that's 50% of your spending of your actual spending. Um, if you make those two tweaks that we just talked about, um, is coming in, is coming in that housing category between the mortgage payment, the taxes and the, uh, utilities. Okay. Well, I'll see what we can do there then. Um, maybe if there is enough of a, we want the flexibility enough, we'll look at doing our own lawn care and house cleaning and then shovel that into no. the VTI. I don't know. We'll see. No, I don't think you should. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking yeah. we'll for somebody to come in and clean my house. And that feels... I've, I've got somebody doing that once every other week. And it is a very, I am very thrilled with that expense. It feels <laughs> like a waste of money because I'm perfectly capable of doing that myself. But it comes down to time and you have more money than time. And that is something that is hard to come from a place with, I have more time than money because I don't have any money. It's hard to flip that switch. And episode 243, Ramit Sethi came on and he talked to us about letting go and letting, you know, spending on things that matter. And it was really hard for me to listen to him. And he kind of pushed and pushed and, uh, made me cry uh but it was it was good to get out of that comfort zone and start looking and i have changed the way that we spend a little bit and we just got back from a vacation a couple of weeks ago and on that vacation we didn't tr- like we were we tracked our spending but we didn't like care what we spent we spent, we went out to dinner every night on vacation. And normally we stay in an Airbnb so we can cook dinner at least a couple of nights a week. And we eat in all the time on vacation. And this one, we went out and we, you know, oh, this looks fun. Let's do this thing. Let's, let's try this thing. Let's, you know, we rented a Tesla because car rentals are expensive anyway. And Carl really wanted it. And it wasn't that much more to get a Tesla. And we saved a little on gas and and it was a fun experience. And at the end of it, we got through our spending and I'm like, how did we spend so much money? But we had such an enjoyable time knowing that I, I know I can afford this vacation. I know that I can spend this money and it isn't going to change my net worth. Just like I know that you're going to take a vacation and I know that it isn't going to change your net worth if you spend $2,000 on that vacation, or if you spend $10,000 on that vacation, that is, I mean, Scott, do the math. What's $10,000 of 330,000? 3%. 3%. That's like 0.3%. You're you're spending 0%. 10,000 is 1% of 1 million. Oh, okay. Well, whatever. It's 3%, like Scott (laughs) said. So you're spending 3% of your annual salary on a vacation that your kids are going to talk about for years. Take pictures, 
get them each an old iPhone and where they can take lots and lots of pictures the whole time and spend time on the beach and get fun towels. And that doesn't mean that you have to go to, you know, spend a thousand dollars on souvenirs, take a lot of pictures and get a super cool seashell or a neat piece of driftwood and, you know, be in the moment. And yes, that means that you're going to go out to dinner every night instead of cooking dinner, but you get so much time back. I didn't have to go grocery shopping. I didn't have to cook dinner. I didn't have to think about things. We took the whole day and just explored. And then at night we went out to dinner and yeah, it was, you know, $120 for dinner, but that's okay because that's not hurting my, my bottom line. You got plenty, plenty of flexibility baked into your financial plan. It's super strong. You definitely know that coming in, Yep. but you have, you have, uh, knowing and accepting are two different things, Scott. Yeah. You can get, you can get what you want out of life here from a a short term Mm -hmm. basis. And then from a flexibility standpoint, you just need to let a couple of years go by or need to make a couple of big reallocation decisions. Well, thank you very much. This has been very helpful. Very, very helpful. It's nice to get um, other people's take on it as opposed to just what's going on between myself and my husband when we talk about it. So really appreciate the insight. Well, thank you for coming on. Congratulations on becoming a millionaire. Um, that's always fun. Thank you. So uh, we, <laughs> you. we enjoy, and, and we enjoyed the, the discussion here. Glad it was helpful. Yeah, April, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, that was April. That was a lot of fun. And, you know, I really identify with a lot of the aspects of her story, Scott. It can be really hard to go from a position of I have no money to a position of I have money and I don't want to spend it because I still remember back to the time when I didn't have any money. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I don't want to mean say it sound too harsh when I say this, but I think April April and her situation is is really emblematic of the what I would call the middle class trap in America with this. I mean, she's she's obviously moving a little out of the middle class with her income level, but essentially 90% of her net worth is in her home equity and retirement accounts. And as she pointed out and we discussed on the episode, that leads to a lack of financial flexibility. And it's hard to move your assets out of your your retirement accounts and your home equity, right? So when I when I asked the question, if he had a blank piece of paper and could draw a brand new portfolio, what would good look like? And we have $100,000 in cash, $200,000 in home equity, $500,000 in real estate, and $500,000 in stocks, right? That You can't do that overnight from April's position without taking huge tax penalties or withdrawal fees or making a massive change with your permanent residence. One way to avoid that, if you've listened to the episode here, is don't build your wealth that way from the get-go. Build it with the flexibility goal in mind when you're getting started so that most of your wealth, when you look up at your $1.3 or $1.5 million in net worth, is in your if you like real estate, real estate portfolio, after-tax stock portfolio, a little bit's in your home equity, and you've got your cash position, right? And that's a much, and it's much easier to build towards that gradually over a five, ten-year period and end up there than it is to um, 
try to convert a position like April's overnight into that. She's going to have to make a major set of life choices with that. So um, while she can certainly do that and she's in a great position, right? Not where, you know, April's got an enviable position um, with, with being a, a, a millionaire and, and having a great income and plenty of savings rate and all that kind of stuff. Just something for you as a listener to think about um, map out that piece of paper and say, what does my end state portfolio look like? And what's going to happen to me if I just kind of follow this automatic path? You have to make some intentional trade-off decisions to get to that flexible end state, I think, um, that we that we articulated there and have it in mind and begin working towards it. Absolutely. It's one thing to max out your 401k, which is a great thing to do when you're in you know, early wealth building mode, but you can't forget about your after-tax investments because especially if early retirement is your plan. I mean, if you're planning on retiring at age 55 or 65, then the after-tax investments aren't necessarily such a big deal. But the the after-tax investments are really, really important when you are contemplating this early retirement stuff that we talk so much about. It's a financial decision, as you just said, to contemplate. It is. Okay, Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. From episode 300 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench, and I am Mindy Jensen saying goodbye for now, brown cow. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month, four kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can afford? Which market and which deal is best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions, all to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devtha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. That's biggerpockets.com slash F-O-U-R. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.